Good morning. <clears throat> what a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord today. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, as we continue our study of the book of Acts. And as you're turning, or perhaps scrolling there, let me just say thank you so much for the way that the congregation has warmly received our family over the last few weeks. Uh, you have been so kind to us. You've been nice. You pretend like you know who I am whenever you say hello. And uh, in all seriousness, we've had a wonderful time uh, becoming a part of Taylor's First Baptist. We've uh, loved this church for years from afar and uh, have had various connections over the years, but it's just been a delight to become members of the church. So thank you. If you've turned to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, I want to invite you to read along silently while I read out loud. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And our prayer this morning is that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would help us now to rightly understand them and apply them to our lives and to your church for your glory and we pray that your work would be evident among us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 197 AD. The place was the Roman province of North Africa. The person was a man named Tertullian. Tertullian was a lawyer who was converted to faith in Christ during a time of persecution. And after he became a Christian, he used his skills of reasoning, his logic, his argumentation, to become what we call an apologist for the Christian faith, someone who defends the faith against skeptics, especially against intellectual arguments against Christianity. And in the midst of that persecution in North Africa around 197, Tertullian penned 
probably the most famous words that have ever been written about persecution. This is what he said. We conquer in dying. We go forth victorious at the very time we are subdued. The more often we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Or maybe you've heard the paraphrase of this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How many of you have heard that before? Tertullian is the one who said that. The blood of the martyrs is seed. This was not just true in 197. It remains true in our own day. According to the ministry Open Doors, in 2022, approximately 360 million professing Christians in the world today live under the threat of persecution. Most of those persecuted believers live in places where it's either illegal or culturally unacceptable or both to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, despite that persecution, today there are more Christians from more people groups in more places than there's ever been at any time in history prior to now. Approximately 2.4 billion people claim the name of Christ. And even if we account for cultural or nominal Christianity, people who think they're a Christian but they don't really know what that means, there are still hundreds of millions of people, maybe over a billion people, who are born-again followers of Jesus Christ in our world today. By far, the greatest number of Christians do not live in places that we've traditionally thought of as Christian places, North America, Europe. No, the, 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 the center of gravity for the Christian world has shifted to what we now call the majority world, what we used to call the, uh, the, third, the third world, and what as believers we call the mission field. Mission field has become the center of gravity for global Christianity. And many of those individuals in those places where there's the greatest growth live under the daily threat of persecution. The fact is both persecution of the church and the growth of the church, both are taking place at unprecedented rates. But this shouldn't surprise us. What was true in Tertullian's day, what remains true in our world today, we see in Acts chapter eight, verses one through eight, it was true in biblical times as well with the early church. And so this morning, as we think together about Acts chapter eight, verses one through eight, I want to really drive home one main point from this text. Though persecution against Christians is a grave evil, in God's kind providence, he often uses that same persecution to advance the gospel.
Let me say that again. Though persecution against Christians is a grave moral evil, in God's kind providence, he often uses that same persecution to advance the gospel. As we walk through these verses together, I want us to think about the context of the believers in the passage that we're talking about. I want us to think about how they responded to their particular context. I want us to think about the results of their response. And I think what we're going to see is that every bit of it is just as relevant for us today in our context as it was for them. So let's look again at verses 1 through 3 as we consider the context of the believers in this passage and their context was a time of heightened persecution. And Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that Pastor Josh preached 755 verses about the life of Stephen and his martyrdom in the early church. Stephen was the first known martyr for the Christian faith. But Stephen's death is significant, not just because he was the first, but because his death marks a turning point, both in the history of Christianity, as well as in the narrative of the book of Acts itself. You see, up to this point, as best as we can tell from the text, persecution had really focused on the apostles and other leaders in the church at Jerusalem. And the goal of that persecution was to silence those leaders. But as far as we can tell, it had not really directly impacted the lives of what I'm going to call everyday believers, people like you and like me. But with Stephen's martyrdom, everything changed. Persecution became more common, impacting all Christians in Jerusalem and other places eventually, not just apostles or other key leaders in the church. And we know from history that what's happening in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, is really the beginning of a pattern where there will be periodic persecution that crops up at least once a generation in between this time, around probably 32 or 33 AD, until the early 300s, when the Roman Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity and outlawed persecution of Christians. 300 years of cyclical persecution, and we're at a key moment in the early part of that history. The very end of Acts chapter 7, the last verse, and these verses that we're looking at at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 tell us that a man named Saul was the key instigator of that persecution. He was the one responsible for ratcheting up the degree of persecution and focusing on everyday Christians. Luke tells us that Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and as if that's not bad enough, he says that 
Paul was ravaging the church. What a phrase. Ravaging the church by going house to house, dragging men and women off to prison for their beliefs. Now, beginning in a week or two, we're going to learn a lot more about Saul, whose other name is Paul, because in Acts chapter 9, beginning there, Paul is going to be the main character of almost all of the rest of the book of Acts. So we'll hear a lot more about him later. But what we need to know today for our purposes is that he's the ringleader of this ramped up persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. For now, let's focus on some of the effects of this persecution that Saul's spearheading. We see that one effect is that most of the believers were scattered. Now, the Jerusalem church by this time likely included at least many hundreds of believers and maybe more than a thousand believers. And we know that because of what we see in the early book of Acts. Even after Pentecost, when thousands of people are saved and, and many of them are sojourners who go back to the lands they've come from, we still see uh, in chapter after chapter that the Lord was regularly adding to the numbers of the church in Jerusalem. And so this was a large congregation, but we see that they've been scattered. And while the apostles continued to minister in and around Jerusalem, most of the other early members of that church left, and they went to surrounding regions. A second fruit that we see of this persecution is that devout men buried Stephen and mourned for him. Now, there's a couple of options about who these devout men might be. It's possible that they were traditional Jews who were not yet followers of Christ, but were also really uncomfortable with persecuting other Jews who were followers of Christ. This is early in Christian history. There's still some ambiguity during this time of transition as to what it means to be a Jewish follower of Jesus, especially before we start seeing Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And so maybe that's who this group is. It's also possible that they are Jewish followers of Christ and that they're mourning their brother in Christ, Stephen, who's been martyred and they're trying to give him a proper burial. The book of Acts isn't crystal clear about this and godly scholars divide right down the middle. But regardless of which group these devout men might be, I don't think it changes anything about the main point of what's happening here. And that's this. The martyrdom of Stephen is deeply impacting those who witnessed it or who are hearing about it. His death is having a ripple effect among those who are in Jerusalem and increasingly those who are elsewhere. Persecution always affects people in various ways. Now in our time, persecution in some places, in some contexts, looks similar to what we see in Acts chapter 8. In others, it looks very different from what we see in Acts chapter 8. We know that there's horrendous persecution that happens in other places, but we're here in Taylor, South Carolina, in the United States of America, so let's talk a little bit about our context. By God's grace, physical persecution is almost non-existent in the United States. People are not dragged off to prison. 
They're not tortured. They're not beaten. We don't experience that type of persecution. However, Bible-believing Christians in America increasingly face various forms of discrimination or ostracization because of what we believe. And in our context, it's often not over the gospel message itself, maybe, maybe a little more than it was 10 years ago, but it's especially over the moral, ethical implications of the gospel. And it's especially over those moral or ethical implications that touch upon who sleeps with whom. Matters of gender, sexuality, and marriage. Think of the lawsuits in recent years and and even in recent days against individuals like the baker, Jack Phillips, or the florist, Baronel Stutzman, both of whom were persecuted by their states because they refused to celebrate homosexual weddings as part of their business practices. Or think about right down the road in Atlanta, Georgia, where police chief Kelvin Cochran was fired a few years ago from that role because he's also a lay pastor in his church. And in that role, he wrote a devotional for his church that happened to speak to biblical views of marriage. He was terminated as police chief. Or right now, think about the NFL analyst and Hall of Famer Tony Dungy, who activists are coming after trying to cancel because he happens to hold to what Christians have always believed about gender and sexuality until the day before yesterday. Persecution comes in many forms and degrees. And it's not going to look as hard and severe for us as it looks for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who face physical persecution every day. But regardless of the form it takes, regardless of its intensity... Every follower of Jesus everywhere faces the same question, how will we respond when they attempt to silence us? Whatever means they use, however severe it is, how will we respond when they seek to silence us? Well, let's look at how they responded in Acts chapter 8. Let's read again verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Their response was to advance the gospel in the midst of persecution. Now, I want us to be clear about something. It's not the apostles in this passage that are going about preaching the word. They're still in Jerusalem. Now, they're going to do that in many places in the book of Acts, but that's not what's happening here. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. It's everyday believers who in their scattering are sharing the gospel with unbelievers, people from every walk of life telling their neighbors, their new neighbors, about Jesus. They were scattered because of persecution, but they remained faithful to the command of Jesus that we see all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the only time I'll ask you to do this today. But turn three or four pages or scroll for five seconds back up to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are Jesus' final marching orders to his followers before he ascends into heaven. And this verse is also the main theme 
of the entire book of Acts. Very familiar, this is what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We've already seen through these last seven chapters that they're being faithful to that command whenever it comes to Jerusalem. That's what the beginning of Acts is all about. But what we begin to see here in Acts chapter 8 is that they've been scattered not to anywhere in general, but to Judea and Samaria in particular, where they are being his witnesses. Folks, God is at work in this. The promised proclamation of Acts 1-8 was being fulfilled through their present persecution in Acts 8-1. That's the providence of God. I like what one Bible scholar says about this verse. Opposition does not stop the missionary work of the followers of Jesus, but prompts them to move to regions and towns in which the gospel of Jesus Christ has not yet been proclaimed. So when we're pressured today to be silent about our faith and its implications, like those in the book of Acts, we should leverage gospel opposition into gospel opportunities. Rather than shrinking back, we should share the good news of Jesus. And even if we're talking about the implications of our faith, we should kindly but firmly speak clearly to what the Bible says about what it means to live in a manner consistent with the good news. The point in all of this, whether it's evangelism or apologetics, it's all different forms of public witness, The point is never to win arguments, but to commend the Savior to those who may hate him today, may even persecute those who love him today, but who were prayerful, they will love him and serve him tomorrow. That's the reason for the witness. Now, I want to be clear about something. I'm not saying that we should not advocate for laws in the USA that reflect biblical values. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to elect politicians who we think are going to be aligned with biblical values. I'm not saying we shouldn't defend religious liberty in the public square. I'm 100% in favor of Christ-centered cultural engagement. And in my other life, as a writer and as an educator, I spend much of my time trying to help Christians to think Christianly about culture. That is deeply important. But listen closely. It is not the main thing. It's not the main thing. The main thing is the great commission of global discipleship to make disciples of men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation, whether they're in the neighborhood or whether they're out among the nations. And everything else we do is a function of that call to make disciples from among all peoples. That is our primary command, and we're commanded to do it even when the people we're trying to make disciples of are persecuting us in various ways. We're called to live the Great Commission.
So what happens whenever we are faithful? What happens when we share the gospel, even if there's intimidation or if there's harassment or maybe even some sort of oppression? What is that? What happens whenever we're faithful? Well, let's look at what happened to the believers in Acts chapter 8. In verses 5 through 8, we see that for them, and I would say for us, the result of faithfulness in the midst of persecution is kingdom advance. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Beginning with these verses, the rest of Acts chapter 8 is going to focus on Philip, who, excuse me, like Stephen, was one of those first deacons going all the way back to Acts chapter 6. And we see that Philip was sharing Christ in an unnamed city in Samaria. Now, you might know from other reading that you've done in the Bible that there was a lot of bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. We see this in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. We see this in uh, Luke chapter 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. That bad blood goes all the way back to Old Testament times when the Samaritans were part of Israel's northern kingdom. They were conquered by the pagan Gentile nations around them. And over time, a series of generations, they intermingled and intermarried with those Gentile pagans. So that by the time we get to the New Testament era, the Samaritans believe a combination of traditional Judaism and the pagan beliefs of their conquerors. But I think this is important for us. Because if we want to compare Philip to us today, when he goes to preach among the Samaritans, it's not like if we go from Taylor's to Greer to share the gospel in Greer who are just among people who are just like people in Taylor's except they live in Greer instead of Taylor's. There's more to it than that. Philip is sharing the gospel cross-culturally with people who are not just like him, who do not share all of his assumptions with people whose worldview is similar, but not identical. We're beginning to see with Philip the gospel spread to people who don't look and sound and believe exactly like the first group of Christians that came to faith in Christ at Pentecost. These verses also make it clear that Philip was gaining a hearing with the Samaritans. His faithfulness was bearing fruit. People were hearing and responding to the gospel. That's hinted at here in these verses. It's going to become much more clear next week in the rest of this chapter that people are believing. People were witnessing miracles. Luke talks about signs. He talks about the paralyzed and lame being healed. And we need to remember that in the book of Acts, miracles often accompanied the preaching of the gospel and confirmed the good news and the lives of those who were hearing it. People were being freed from demonic oppression. Satan was losing his diabolical hold on that region as those under his influence 
were beginning to respond to the message of Christ and his kingdom. Finally, there was much joy in the city. Philip's ministry was making an impact on the lives of those to whom he was ministering. Friends, this is what happens when the kingdom advances. The good news of the kingdom brings eternal salvation to the spiritually lost, and it brings earthly flourishing to those who are influenced by that message. Sometimes even those who've not yet believed it. For Philip and many others, no doubt, who are not named here in Acts chapter 8, the response to persecution was not to abandon belief in Jesus. It wasn't even to go radio silent about Jesus, but rather to tell others about Jesus, to leverage oppression as opportunity, persecution for the sake of proclamation, and God gave them a harvest, which is the main point of this sermon this morning. Though persecution against Christians is a grave moral evil, in God's providence, he often uses persecution to spread the gospel, even among the persecutors. It was true in AD 32. It was true in AD 197. And by God's grace, it remains true in the year of our Lord, 2023. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to behold. And in God's economy, persecution, pressure, tension, whatever you want to call it, that's simply a means of kingdom advance as he works in and through his people to bring about his purposes. I want to close this morning with a reminder, a challenge, and a call. First, the reminder. I want to remind you, if you're here and you're a member of Taylor's First Baptist Church, that you are part of a community of disciples with a rich heritage of evangelism and missions and serving those in need. We've been making a kingdom impact in this community and across the globe since 1864 when we began as Chick Springs Baptist Church. We have a rich, joyful, great commission legacy. But that's not enough. You know what they call a legacy that's not being lived out, right? History. So the legacy matters but I don't want to just remind us, I also want to challenge us all to live out that legacy as individuals, families, life groups, ministries, and the entire community of Taylor's First Baptist Church. We need to live out this godly legacy, and we need to live out this Great Commission legacy regardless of what pressures may come from our culture. The temperature may get hotter, Temperature might go down a bit. Temperature might stay the same. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it doesn't matter what happens in the shifting sands of culture. We must remain faithful to what God is doing in and through our church. Opposition to our faith is an opportunity to share the faith. 
May we see opposition as opportunity. I know Pastor Stephen would love to talk to anyone here who's interested in knowing more about what we're doing to engage with our neighbors and the nations. You can find out more about what it means to live out that legacy actively of great commission faithfulness. Finally, I have a call for you today. And this is a call especially for those of you who are here who've not yet responded to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't want you to leave today before you look to him alone as the king of your life. Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life that every one of us are commanded to live, but none of us ever do. And he died a sacrificial death on the cross that we deserve to die, but don't have to. And he was raised into the new life of everlasting flourishing that is intended for every one of us. And if you turn from your sins today, and if you trust Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, he will forgive you of your sins. He will adopt you into his forever family. He will begin to mold and make you into who he wants you to be, and he will give you everlasting life. Friend, don't leave today before finding your story in his story and letting him work in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses that remind us that opposition is opportunity, that persecution is for the sake of proclamation, that Acts 1-8 is fulfilled in part by Acts 8-1, and that like our brothers and sisters before us, you are calling us to be faithful. Lord, whether we face great persecution or no persecution, whether it makes us uncomfortable or our very livelihood is in jeopardy, Father, may we be faithful to be your witnesses here in our neighborhood, in upstate South Carolina, across this land, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And may you work through us like you worked then to help us to be faithful no matter what. And we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory for the harvest that we know you'll bring. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a closing hymn of invitation. I'll be right down here, down front, if you'd like to come and pray with me, learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus or learn more about what it means to be a member of Taylor's First Baptist Church. But whether you're responding where you're standing or whether you wish to come down front, let's all of us be sensitive to what God is doing in our lives this morning and especially in these next few moments.